You're listening to Acts, the beginnings of the Christian Church, a sermon series by the young adults of Calvary Tabernacle. For more information, visit us online at www.yacalvarytabindy.org. Um, well, praise the Lord. It's good to see you guys on Sunday morning. Um, our podium is at camp right now, so they're going to run my PowerPoint back there, and I'm going to try not to look lost without something to hold on to here. It's kind of hard, <laughs> but I guess I do it in the classroom, so there we go. Um, my lesson today uh, picks up where we left off in Acts last week, in Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 34, if you want to turn there, if you have your Bible. Um, and we're going to talk today about uh, Paul's um, sermon on uh, Mars Hill and uh, the, the types of people that he encountered there and the way that he handled himself um, and so forth. Uh, could you click that, please, Brad? Does anybody else feel like this always happens to me? <laughs> I don't know what the deal is. I don't want to act self-pity here, but <laughs> come on. Um, you know what? I'll go ahead and um, I'll go ahead and start with a story that I was going to end with um, while they figure that out. Um, I uh, my sister got married a couple weeks ago, and um, while I was there, I was sitting. Um, I was of course in the wedding, and so I was sitting up. They had kind of a raised platform where the the bridal party was sitting, and uh, for some reason I was other people had moved off for a few minutes and I was sitting there kind of by myself and there was nobody on either side of me and a woman came up to me and um, I was looking down at her because I was kind of on a raised platform and she took my hand kind of to shake it and then held on and she's looking up at me like she knows me and I'm thinking I have no idea who you are um, wondering why she's holding on to my hand and she says, looking into my eyes with tears in her eyes, I respect you so much. And I said, I, I mean, I don't even know what my face said, because my face is very expressive. It probably said, who are you, lady? Um, but she went on from there, and she said, I respect you so much and what you stand for, and, and kind of elaborated on that. Of course, people could tell that I was dressed a little differently than the other girls in the bridal party. And... Um, she, she explained that she had taught with my sister. Uh, my sister taught fourth grade in Arkansas um, last year and said she had taught fourth grade with my sister and that she knew who I was. And she said to me, she said, you went from Presbyterian to Pentecostal. She said, I went the other way. She said, I started out Pentecostal and I married a Presbyterian minister. And I, I'm... I had to have looked at her with just an incredulous look because being back in that situation, back in the Presbyterian church, just reiterated to me how thankful I was that I was out of that, um, that dry, just like, what's the point religion? <laughs> Sorry. Um, and honestly, those people are so dedicated to get up every morning. <laughs> that sounded really offensive. I'm sorry. Um, it's kind of how I felt, though. So my look just had to be like, what are you talking about? And she said, I married a Presbyterian minister. 
and um, I have lived basically with regret ever since. And she said, um, after you've had the experience that I know you've had, there's no turning back. She said, I understand that. I understand why you're here and why you stood for what you stood and why you fought for what you fought for. She said, I try, and I mean, literally tears are, I mean, it's, it was such an uncomfortable situation, really, um, up in the middle, in the front of, you know, two, 300 people. Um, she said, I try to sing songs in my head. I try to pray. I try to, try to live it in my mind. She said, it just doesn't work. And the thing that killed me was the repentance that was just all over her face. I mean, there it was, she, she was regretting everything that she had given up. And, and just, you could see that she lived with that every day and questioned her decision. And yet, in her voice, I heard hopelessness. It was like, there's, there's no hope, I can't turn back. And I think she knew that not because she didn't think God would accept her, but because she knew she was in a trap with a husband that, preached at another church. The pastor's wife can't just up and go. And so I started thinking, because obviously that has an impact on you, I really started thinking what would cause someone to turn from what we have to what, to that? Because I, I mean, I, I can tell you from both sides of the coin, there is no comparison and she had to have reasoned in her heart in some way that it was worth it. And I don't know how she did that. I don't know what in her mind caused her to say, okay, this makes more sense than this right now. But she, at some point, reasoned herself out of Pentecost. And I really, the feeling that I got from her was not that she backslid, but that she just thought, I can do this without church. I can do this without the fellowship of people or such, you know, whatever. And it just broke my heart <clears throat> that reason took her down the path away from God. And so what I want to talk to you about today, um, bless your heart, this thing's given all kinds of problems this morning, um, is the consequences of reason. Because Paul met um, on Mars Hill some men who made a sport out of reasoning and really loved to reason and consider and try to figure things out. And um, so that's fine. Yeah, let's just do that. Thank you, Bradley. Okay, so I want to start, and I'm going to try to move quickly here. Um, Paul in ancient Athens is where this began, obviously. And he's, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come from Berea, so he's just kind of hanging out in Athens. And while he was there, he was moved by the obvious idolatry and paganism of the city, just overcome by it. Um, <clears throat> Athens was at its economic peak in the 5th century BC, um, so about five centuries before this, but it continued as a cultural center long after. And it was famous, obviously, um, and still is today, for its statues, its buildings, and monuments, all of which were dedicated to pagan mythological gods and goddesses. And of course, today, if you visit Athens, um, at least I think, it, it, the city is, I mean, they still have all the remains of all of that. But as far as I know, they don't actively, in a lot of ways, worship those gods and goddesses, um, kind of just honor the memory and the tradition of it. Um, but at that time, you would have seen people making offerings and sacrifices to these fake gods, basically. 
Can you go to the next one, please? Um, Verse 16 and 17. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Once again, we see Paul beginning to preach to his own first, to the Jews and other devout people in Athens. Um, Athens was truly wholly given to idolatry as almost no other city was at that time or even is today. Um, Every part of their culture and architecture pointed to false religion. You couldn't avoid it. The thing that I think is interesting is um, Paul was sensitive enough to be stirred by that. And I find myself, and I'm sure you do at times, getting insensitive to those to the evidence of idolatry, the evidence of false doctrine. But Paul was sensitive and he was stirred. And it reminds me of when Jesus looked out and was moved with compassion for the people. Um, Not only did he let himself be stirred, though, it says, therefore, he was was obedient enough to react with the presentation of the gospel, which if I make it through the first step, often I fall off in step two. (laughs) I get stirred and then I don't react with the presentation of the gospel click please thank you verse 18 through 21 and then certain philosophers of the epicureans and of the stoics encountered him and some said what will this babbler say when you translate babbler there um, it actually literally means seed picker Um, in other words they were insulting him and saying that rather than having a a well-formed doctrine he had just picked and chosen what he wanted and put together this kind of loosely, just this ridiculous doctrine. It was a, really an insult to him. Others, some, he seemed to, others said, sorry, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preacheth unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto the Areopagus, saying, uh, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore what these things mean, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Um, That scripture's always kind of captured my attention because I know people like that. They're really into the new and the trendy and, you know, they'll just sit and talk to you about the new stuff all day long and you want to say to them, this isn't new. Um, Click, please. So I wanted to look back at who were the Epicureans and the Stoics because we see a lot of evidence of their doctrine still in our culture today. The Epicureans were a religious body, um, and I put some quotes here because it was easier and thought a little more impacting. Um, They sought contentment by a severe detachment, or sorry, serene detachment from the world. Um, They believed that there was no divine intervention in life nor punishment after death. They were very materialistic. They felt that pleasure and the avoidance of pain were the chief end of man, and they believed that at death, the body and the soul disintegrate. Could you click, please? And the Stoics, on the other hand, sought happiness by accepting nature as it is and finding their place within it, were essentially pantheistic, saw self-mastery as the greatest virtue, glorified an indifference to both pain and pleasure, so they didn't, they didn't want their emotions to control them in any way. And they felt that the goal of life was to feel nothing, which just sounds ridiculous to me. 
Um, but when you look at those, when I started typing that into my computer, I thought this honestly could be like a, a pamphlet for the Oprah show in a lot of ways. I mean, these, these things are everywhere. Um, Self-mastery as the goal of life. How many of you have heard that in some way? Master yourself physically. Become the ultimate, you know, get as strong as you can, all of those things. Um, control of emotion, responses to pain and pleasure as a way to serenity and peace. How many of you have heard that recently? Don't, don't let yourself react strongly to anything. Um, the seeking of pleasure and the avoidance of pain as a way of life, which actually leads to materialism and sensuality. Because when you avoid pain, you avoid <laughs> the real things of life. Um, the acceptance of the universe or nature and finding your place within it. Love of the earth becoming the highest, most virtuous goal. I honestly want to hit someone who says to me that living green is the ultimate goal of life. Now, I will make changes where I can make changes, but I am not going to worship the earth. Hello, I'm not going to. I, <laughs> it's gonna be destroyed. <laughs> What are they thinking? <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, I respect them and what they're trying to do, but I'm not going to make it my ultimate goal. Um, and then the belief in no punishment after death or in a higher power that acts on our behalf. And the, the thing that I hate about these things is that they make you feel stupid when you don't believe them. How many of you have felt stupid because someone gets on their high horse and says to you, well, I believe that such and such, whatever okay, fine, but let's follow your argument to the end and let's see where it's really going to lead you. Sure, it sounds good to seek pleasure and avoid pain, but where does that get you? Where does it really lead you to? Do you really have a fulfilling life through that? Um, and so seeing that really Paul was facing our culture 2,000 years ago, that this was our culture just lived out in a different way. So if you could click, please. Um, the Areopagus um, was a group that had condemned Socrates a few centuries before. It was named for the hill it once met on, and it had power because Athens was a free city in the Roman Empire and therefore had the right to self-rule. So they were still in the Roman in Empire, but they were kind of, this was their concession to let them rule themselves. The council prided itself on impartial, totally unemotional judgments based on fact alone. And there's a lot of history to that that's interesting that I'm not going to go into today. Um, but in Paul's case, on this day, it seemed to be only a hearing, as no verdict was made or any vote was taken. They, at the end, they didn't make, form a consensus. People made their own decisions based on what he had said. Um, but normally, this was a, a council that, that made a judgment call one way or another. Um, thank you. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. I've always thought that was one of the most brilliant openings to a sermon that I've ever heard. He was, Paul was brilliant, and I, I know that he was inspired by the Holy Ghost, but he really was smart. It was against the law in Athens. This is why he was smart. It was against the law in Athens to preach a new deity. So he couldn't just walk in and say, Jesus is God. He, he, that was against the law. So he simply expounded upon one that they already worshipped. He said, okay, so 
I'm just going to tell you the name of this unknown God that you've got over here. Um, where it says, I perceive in all things you are too superstitious. He actually, when you translate that, it says they were addicted to religion. And he wasn't complimenting them there. He was very bold. He said, you're, you're not just religious. You are addicted to religion, addicted to just the trappings of false doctrine. Click, please. Verse 24 through 26. Can someone tell me if that clock is right? It says like 11 till. Is that right? Okay, just wanted to make sure. Um, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. This is just continuing his sermon. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Um, this had actually several direct attacks on the Greek religion, just in that one little section there. For one thing, he said to them, God doesn't dwell in your temples, your stinking temples. He isn't worshipped with men's hands like you think he is. He said all men are equal and created from the same blood. That was not something that was acceptable. Greeks, if you weren't part of them, called you a barbarian. So he said, hold on here. We all came from the same blood. He said, God is in control of the rise and fall of nations and their boundaries. Back then it was very, you know, I mean, people were into conquering and resettling and expanding and kind of like today. Um, but that would have been kind of an affront to them to have someone say, by the way, God is in control of those things. And it was a direct contradiction of the capricious Greek gods who were influenced by the actions of men. And if you read mythology and, and kind of study the Greek religion, you see that the Greek gods and goddesses were actually very involved in human life. And so the Greeks kind of had this false sense of security that if they could manipulate the gods in some way through sacrifices or even trickery sometimes, that they could get what they needed and wanted. So the idea of a supreme god who was in control of everything was was an insult to them and would have kind of shaken them up a little bit. Continuing, that, that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as, also, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that God is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art, and man's device. Here Paul is quoting Aratus, a, a poet of Cilicia, where he's from. So he's bringing in other sources. And then he reiterates that the Godhead is not something we create with man-made materials, but rather that we were created by him. And when you think of it in the context of that culture, how upsetting that would be for them to hear that, that everything that you've created here, all these fabulous gold statues and all of these things actually mean nothing. You, Paul was so brave and so bold, so good. Um, verse 30 through 31. And the times of ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And these were major issues 
with the men that Paul was speaking to. Because remember, they didn't believe in a final judgment. And so therefore, the ideas of repentance, why would you need to repent if there's no judgment? Why would you need to live righteous if there's no judgment? Why would salvation be important to you if there's no judgment? How many of you are saved sometimes because you know a judgment is coming? Hello, yeah? So, I mean, it's a motivating factor in my religion to know that there's a judgment coming. Um, I love the Lord, but sometimes it's good to be reminded. And so they had no concept of this in Greece at that time. Um, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Can't you just hear them? We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So if you look at the response to Paul's um, sermon here, we see that there were three major responses here. There were the mockers, those that heard what he said and said, oh yeah, somebody was raised from the dead. Cool. Mm -hmm. go, go back to wherever you came from. Um, there were the believers, the people that received it, among which was one of the councilmen, who was an important person in Greece at that time. And then there were those that were unwilling to make a judgment call at that time. And I wonder about those people, because they, they said, well, we'll hear you again about this. They didn't say, we're interested in this, or maybe next time we'll be ready. They said, we'll hear you again about this. So it just shows you the mindset of the people that... that this was entertainment to them. In other words, come back, talk to us again. We'll, we'll think about it again. It just it was wrong. Regardless of what happened here, Paul left the discussion. He didn't go back. The people that were really interested in Jesus followed him. God did no recorded miracles or signs at this meeting. You remember when um, Peter began to preach to Cornelius and his household, Boom, the Holy Ghost fell. And how many times did that happen in Scripture? But God didn't do anything here. People who converted did so based solely on faith in God's preached word. That was a short little message there that he gave, with not a lot of details of salvation or anything. Really was a message of condemnation in a lot of ways. Probably came out kind of um, academic sounding, but it, it was to the point. And, and God didn't back his word up that time with anything miraculous. But those people received it anyway. And you have to wonder at what price they received it. Um, Dionysius, the Areopagite, he was sitting there with his people, his council. He was one of them, and he left what they did and followed Paul, followed Jesus. I, I respect people like that. It's very good. Can you click, please? So I wanted to think about reason, and, and the story that I told at the beginning kind of led me down this path. Yes, sir. Oh, <laughs> sorry, I'm a teacher. People raise their hand. I say, what do you want? <laughs> yeah. Go, go. <laughs> Doesn't matter what I say. <laughs> I'm not teaching or anything. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay. Um, so, what is reason? <laughs> Two and a half weeks till I'm back. Okay, the dictionary defines reason as to think or to argue in a logical manner, to form conclusions, judgments, or inferences from facts or premises, 
or to urge reasons um, which should determine belief or action. Reason is the consideration of facts through the lens of secularism. It values only what is measurable from a worldly viewpoint. Can you click, please? Oops. Is that what? Okay, thank you. So, when is reason right? Because God gave us the ability to reason logically. Amen? Okay, we're not stupid. Um, for example, we can consider the pros and cons of a job offer or housing contract. Um, reasoning as a means to an end is not wrong. Although from a Christian perspective, it is important to seek the counsel of the Lord in life-changing decisions. I didn't talk to Jesus about what I was wearing today. I just kind of reasoned that one out on my own, right? Um, but life-changing things we want to include the Lord in. So it's not that reason is bad, but there are some down points, um, Brad. So when is reason wrong? Reason is wrong when it contradicts God's laws and commandments. I can't reason myself into adultery and call that right in any way. Um, reason that ignores the influence and preeminence of God's spirit in our life. Reasoning as a sport, as a way of life, without the intention of reaching a decision. I have to tell you that if there is any person or people, group of people, that get under my skin more, it is people that reason as a sport. Because to me, if there is no conclusion at the end, we just wasted our time. And, and I leave mad. That's when I don't get mad very often, but that is when I get angry. When people don't see absolute truth, it burns me. Um, when the, the actual reasoning becomes the goal rather than the way to reach the goal. And reasoning that denies the existence of absolute truth. And then has the audacity to look down on those that embrace truth. And that is where our society is today. They'll sit on the Oprah show and the Dr. Phil show and all those shows, and they will reason their hearts out and try to look down on those of us that can't buy into their reasoning because we see an absolute truth, and we don't have to reason to get there. We might have reasoned initially, but there are some things that are settled in my life that I don't have to reason through. Could you click? Thank you. So, sometimes the reasoning of God does not make sense through our human lens. can't tell me that it made sense to that man who left the council um, for him to leave. Often later, we can see the purpose God had in leading us through or around a certain situation. How many of you have had that happen to you? you God told you to do something, and at the time it made absolutely no sense. And in the end, you thought, well, he knew what he was talking about. Um, our reasoning is based on Matthew 16. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? It doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Because to us, to live our life for God... And things of God makes all the sense in the world because we feel the rewards and we know that one day we'll reap the rewards in heaven. But to people on the outside, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So some of the takeaway lessons from Athens. Um, going back to the beginning, let yourself be stirred like Paul with compassion for the unsaved when you see they are idolatrous ways. 
and then do your part to witness. Don't just walk away from them. Do your part. Be willing to answer their questions without being offended by their ignorance. Um, I read somewhere that um, when you're working with um, high schoolers and young people, don't let yourself be intimidated by their immaturity. You know, because sometimes they'll say things and make comments, and if you put yourself back in that high school mentality, you could let your feelings get hurt. But then you have to think, they, they're not reasoning from the right perspective here. They, they don't get it yet. And if you look at the world in that way, not in a, you know, I'm better than you way, but in a, they just don't get this yet way, it, it can help you keep from being hurt. Um, be wary of being caught in the net of religious reasoning. It's a net. It, it catches a lot of people, this religious high thinking. And, and there is a, we, I was talking to Brother Kilman this morning, there's a lot to be said for calling things by the right names and knowing what you're talking about, but be careful of people that just want to reason with you. And then also preach from where they are. And Paul does this so many times in Acts. He preaches, he, he tailors his messages in some way exactly to what those people need to hear to move them to the next step. You know, those Greeks, they weren't ready to hear about uh, repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the Holy Ghost. They didn't even believe that Jesus existed. In fact, some commentaries said when he talked about Jesus and the resurrection, they thought those were the two gods, Jesus, resurrection, which sounds silly to us, but they didn't get it. Could you click, please, Brad? And then also, don't be afraid to depart after you've spoken your peace. Those that were moved will seek you out. If, if you're in a situation where you just need to leave, that's okay. It's okay to leave. Reasoning does not always lead you to God's will. Reasoning through an academic, through a worldly lens. Our lives often don't make sense by the world's standards. I think back to that lady so much. And, and what, what could have possibly gotten a hold of her? to make her leave Pentecost. What was she thinking? What kind of reasoning made sense to her? Because you don't make a decision like that on the fly. Something had to make sense to her. And what was it? What did she get caught up in? And last, don't feel like you need to defend your decisions to those that don't trust God. Just as one day you will understand the purpose God had, so they will also see the fruits of your obedience. How many of you have felt maybe from family or from friends, people not in the church, sometimes even people in the church, unfortunately. You make a decision, bad career move by their standards, bad education move, bad marriage move, whatever, you, whatever you're doing, and you know God told you to do such and such, and they look at you and say, you are a fool, and you'll regret this one day. You'll, you'll regret making this turn one day. You'll regret giving up such and such. For my parents, it's, you'll regret not having retirement. Well, okay, probably I will. But they will also see the fruits of the obedience. And, and there's something that I want you to take away today. It's to remember that reasoning is not the end, and there are consequences to reasoning. Just like that lady stood in front of me and held my hand and cried in front of 300 people, literally, and said, I regret leaving the church. There's things 
that if we follow human reasoning, will leave us filled with regret over the things that we've lost in the kingdom of God. So don't be fearful. Be strong. God's going to take care of us. And don't be afraid to step out in faith and to trust the Lord. And is that my last slide, Brad? All right. So let's, if you could stand with me and pray. Jesus, thank you for bringing us together again this morning. Lord, we're filled with thanksgiving at what you've done in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the examples in scripture. We thank you for the things that you have taught us. We thank you for leading us in your Holy Ghost. Lord, I pray that you would send blessings upon this group, but that most of all, Lord, you would mold us in your image. God, we want to be like you. We need you. We ask for your guidance, your leading. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.